Amen. Thank you, Michaela and Reagan. Appreciate that much. All right, grab your Bibles and turn with me. Romans chapter number one. Romans chapter number one. We're going to begin a study now on this wonderful book of Romans. And uh, boy, what a we'll talk more about it, but what a wonderful book. Romans chapter one, if you're joining me there. And uh, we're, as we finish up James on Sunday night, then we have a plan to go from there back to the Old Testament some ways and, and uh, some unique ways. But here on Wednesday night, we're going to delve now into the book of Romans. And so... Uh, it's a glorious book that we are now embarking on and delving into. Uh, if you think of the book of Romans, it is a fundamental epistle to the New Testament. Honestly, it is, uh, here in the New Testament, it is a gift to the New Testament believer in the New Testament church. As we consider what is talked about, what is discussed, what is presented from the the mind of God through the hand of man in the book of Romans, uh, we have much to be excited about. I, I don't think it's by accident either. I don't think it's just by man's decision when they came to put the canon of Scripture together in the King James Bible. And I, I don't think it was man's decision. In fact, I think it was divine guidance that caused them to place the book of Romans right after the Gospels and right after the book of history known as Acts. It is an introductory to the New Testament epistles. It really lays the groundwork. And as you'll see here, we we consider it, and I consider it to be um, a rock-solid book uh, that presents a rock-solid faith and a faith that is founded upon who? The rock, Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and so Romans is just a tremendous, we'll see it here. Uh, Paul uses it. If you look at verse 1, the last few words of verse number 1, Uh, you'll see he makes the statement, gospel of God, gospel of God. And so he uses that at times interchangeably and uh, with gospel of Christ. And he he puts it forth as part of the theme of this book. And so it is, again, coming on the heels uh, of the gospel, the presentation of Jesus Christ through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We now get to Romans and its explanation of the gospel. Um, many people have called these 16 chapters, uh, they've called it the constitution of the Christian faith. The constitution of the Christian faith. Some have uh, con- described it as a book that presents the Christian life described. Going from, am I cutting out? Sure sounds like I'm cutting out, am I? Okay, joy, here we go. I'm, you know what, we're going to do without mics forever. Um, Yes, I got to use this one. All right. Um, anyway, some have described it as the treatise for the Christian life, describing and presenting it, and uh, expounding upon what the Christian life is. And it sounds like we have a little bit more power. Anyway, um, somebody has once stated with this they, that it, they recognize it as a theological masterpiece. It's believed that Phoebe, or Phoebe, as you pronounce her name, she's mentioned in Romans chapter 16. Paul recommends her to the church there at Rome. And in doing so, many believe that that possibly she was the one who carried the letter to Rome. Uh, She's the one that presented to the church on behalf of Paul. And uh, there is a critic who lived many, 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 many years ago of the, the church of Christians of Jesus Christ. And this is the statement he made in describing that. Uh, he made, he, he said, made the statement. He said, of speaking of Phoebe or Phoebe, she carried beneath the folds of her robe the whole future of Christian theology. Now that's a grand statement. 
A skeptic, someone who doesn't believe the Bible. He looks at it and says, wait a minute, this book of Romans, this letter that Paul wrote to the church of Rome, it is the underpinnings of the Christian theology. It is wrapped up in a beautiful package. Christian doctrine, theology, the study of God, the study of the Christian life, all here presented to us. And so it is. As we consider it, it, it's a very logical, detailed account of what? Well, an account of man's guilt and his sinful status. That all man is guilty before God. Of God's redemption and his salvation presented, planned for, and, and declared to all. That all may come to trust in him. It is an account of the benefits of grace in your life and in mine. It is an account of the relationship between the church, the New Testament church, and in Israel. It is an account of God's masterful sovereignty over all things. It's an account presented to us of the practicality of the Christian life while certainly it presents the idea of that being found in serving God, service to God. That you and I would now present our bodies a living sacrifice. So Romans, boy, it presents so much. It contains a myriad of principles for living the Christian life while it also expounds upon the the spiritual journey every soul must take to come to Christ. Uh, The fact that creation reveals God, that the conscience within us speaks of God. and So Romans hits on all of it, the entire journey, we might say. I like to state it this way. Herein, the book of Romans, mankind is exposed for all his wickedness, his sinfulness, and his helplessness. But no less, here in this book, God is also exposed. He is exposed for all his love, his compassion, his mercy, his grace, his powerful, bountiful blessings shown to you and I. As we put our faith and trust in Him. Can I tell you tonight, if you've never studied the book of Romans, if you've never taken the time to mull over it and and chew it up a little bit uh, thoughtfully and meditatively, can I tell you as we delve into this study of the book of Romans, you are in for a great treat. You say, Pastor Henry, I've studied Romans. Well, if you have, you know as well as I do. You could spend a lifetime in this one book found in the greatest of all books, and you still would not grasp and learn it all. Romans is one of those books in the Bible. I enjoy opening it up and reading. And every time I open it up and open my Bible to the book of Romans, my heart is encouraged, my head is challenged in its thinking, and my hands find motive for serving God. And so it was for Paul. So my challenge to you as I as you and I study, listen, he 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 uses some pretty high logic in some passages. He challenges us about thinking through what we believe and why we believe it and then the natural play out of that thought and and that belief system how it should find its fruition and practicality in my life. Boy, he exposes some things and he challenges us all at the same time. We think of Paul. It's hard to imagine that as he writes this letter to Rome and and the believers there, the church. Oh, God bless it. Okay, thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. Uh, As we think about it, it's hard to believe that Paul um, had never visited Rome yet. 
He had made many plans to do so. He had desired to do so many years over, and yet he never had. Uh, in fact, he had made, like I said, plans, but those had not come to fruition. So as he writes this, he likely writes it from Corinth. And as he does, it won't be for about three to four years that he actually gets to go there. And many of his dreams of seeing the church and the believers there come to play. And so if you think about it, with that being the case, he certainly has met some of the believers in other cities and other travelings that he has done, other missionary journeys. But for the most part, many of these believers have never met Paul. So as we come to the beginning of the book of Romans, and, and it, is not, it is one of his earlier epistles, so many of them may not have written, read the other letters if they were passed around to Rome or not. And so this is an introduction of Paul to these believers there in Rome, the Gentile city. And so if you think about it in those terms, he begins this letter as an introductory, or in an introductory manner, excuse me. Um, and so let's look at verses 1 through 7. Let's see how Paul introduces himself. I, I think it's key. Notice it. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I like Paul. He doesn't waste much words. We studied Galatians, we studied Colossians, we studied many different books here already that Paul has written, and he just does not waste words. He, he makes sure that they are jam-packed of great truth, and it is a powerful introduction, and as Paul often does, he infuses into his salutation, his greeting, some doctrine, some truth, and frankly, some poignant exhortation to believers. Already, he jumps right on it. He challenges them from the beginning of the pen strokes, uh, the quill strokes, however you want to describe it. It's a challenge. It's teaching. It's exhortation. Notice, if you will, we're going to see three things from this introduction by Paul. Three things. And first begins this way. We see that he starts right away with his own credentials. His own credentials. Uh, he, he's, again, introducing himself. You and I know Paul well. You don't need me to expound upon the story of Paul. We know it well and his threatenings and his kicking against the pricks and then the road to Damascus, his grace transformation and, and Lord converting him and then how he went on to, to serve the Lord and establish churches, his missionary journeys. We know that well. And yet the truth written in this book is not an abstract thought to Paul. Literally, it is Paul's journey. It's Paul himself telling you, here's where the Lord has taken me. Many believe that he spent two to three years at some point there after Damascus that of just learning and the Holy Spirit teaching him and growing. And certainly a possibility. And, and this describes possibly what Paul learned during some of those times, how the Holy Spirit taught him. And so this is not an abstract teaching of Paul. It's not something that he, he has not personally experienced. It's the story of his life. I like to think of it this way. 
You think of an important person in the world. You, you think of maybe it's an athlete, maybe it's a, a, a famous person, however they may be. If they were, for instance, let's just take somebody, let's take the, uh, let's just to keep it non-too political. Let's just say President Bush, okay? George W. Bush was out somewhere and he met somebody and the person didn't, regu- didn't recognize George W. Bush. President, ex-president, but president, former president. How would he introduce himself? Oh, governor before, whatever the case may be. And how would he describe himself to somebody who didn't know anything about him? You, you think of it, and you may think of a famous athlete, a LeBron James. You may think of Donald Trump, the current president. And how would they introduce themselves to somebody who maybe who didn't know them? Well, we look at the beginning of Romans, and, and here is Paul introducing himself. See, if you and I introduce Paul, it might be something like, oh, here is one of the greatest missionaries the world's ever seen. Here is a man who used to be against God, and he fought God, and, and boy, he was in the, in the Jew, uh, Judaism, and he was moving through the ranks, and boy, he was something. And now uh, he had a, this, this episode on the road to Damascus, and God spoke to him, and he got saved, and now he's living for God, and he's serving God. This is Paul. Boy, he's written some great letters. You and I would go on this great explanation of who he is to someone if we were introducing. But what I like about Romans chapter 1, you know what it is? It's Paul introducing himself. It's Paul giving his own credentials. And you like to see what a man values, what a man finds important about himself. See, we meet some people today, and the first thing they're going to tell you is how much education they have, how much they make a year, what kind of job they do, what they drive, (laughs) accomplishments, things like that. You can tell a lot about a person what they'll tell you if you've never met them before. Here's Paul, and Paul himself hmm, shares the things that he has experienced, the truths the Holy Spirit has made clear to him. And here he starts by giving his own favorite credential, one that he often repeats in some of his other letters. What does he describe himself? Well, verse number one, he said, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, a servant of Jesus Christ. It's that familiar Greek word. We've heard it often, doulos, literally means bond slave or one if we could explain it or, or expound upon the definition, one enslaved to another. Here he was. He was once the servant of Saul. He was once the, uh, the one who was a slave of Saul the man. But now he is willingly a slave of Jesus Christ. And he declares it. Here in this book, he, he shares the truth. Starting here in this first chapter, he shares the truths that compelled him uh, to do just that. To freely choose to be enslaved to Christ, his Savior. It is a bold declaration from the very first stroke of the pen. A purpose, purposeful statement by one of the founding fathers of the New Testament church. He says, I am no more, I am no less than a servant of Jesus Christ. Great description. To other Romans, this was quite the declaration that he would say he would happily, willingly consider it a privilege to be a slave to Jesus Christ. 
You see, to the Romans, slavery and the concept of being a bond slave would be all too familiar. No doubt in that church at Rome, there were some who were slaves at that very moment. There were some who maybe had purchased their freedom. Some themselves servants, though free, they may have had to go and be a servant in a household. They would have connected immediately, as Paul used that word, doulos. They would have understood it. That concept would have been very clear to them. And so when they began to read that letter in the church of Rome, and it began by Paul, a doulos. Wow. He called himself a servant, a bond slave. That declaration would have had great significance and importance. He was setting the tone for the rest of his book in which he lays out the real Christian life. A life in which you and I are called to be just that. A slave, a servant to Jesus Christ. Not bashfully, not, well, I guess if I have to. No, 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 my friend. It is a privilege to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a privilege to be his servant and his slave. I've mentioned her often, but Frances Ridley Havergal, one of my favorite hymn writers. And I think she captures the spirit and the meaning of what Paul describes here in verse number one so wonderfully. It's a song that I have not sung, and she she wrote many poems. Some were put to music. This one was, but I've not sung it or have not seen it in a hymn book per se. But she wrote this, and forgive me, the, the term there is yielded. We'll get to that in a moment. You'll see that, the idea that Paul was yielded. But notice her, these three verses. She wrote this. Oh, I, or excuse me, I love, I love my master. I will not go out free. For he is my redeemer, he paid the price for me. I would not leave his service, it is so sweet and blessed. And in the weariest moments, he gives the truest rest. Verse 2, my master shed his lifeblood, my vassal, uh, life to win, servitude. And save me from the bondage of tyrant, self, and sin. He chose me for his service and gave me power to choose that blessed, perfect freedom which I shall never lose. And then she finishes up with this third uh, stanza. It's there on your outline too at the bottom. I would not have. Isn't that a great statement? I would not have my service. I would not cut in half. I would not serve two masters. I I would not serve self and the Savior. No, no, no. I'm not a servant of both. I'm a servant of God. I would not have my service. His only it must be. His only who so loved me and gave himself for me. Rejoicing and adoring, henceforth my song shall be. I love, I love my master. I will not go out free. Man, what a great declaration. Here's a hymn writer who, who grasped what, what Paul was saying here. Sometimes we read this terminology where he says he's a servant. Like, oh, a servant. No, no, friend. You and I have the wrong, wrong picture of what it means to be a slave and servant for the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has it here. He expressed, man, this is a joy. This is a delight to serve the King of Kings. Do you want to go out and be a tyrant or serve a tyrant of your flesh and this world and sin? You go for it. Oh, no, my friend. I'd much rather be a servant of the Most High, a slave to Him. Paul, for Paul, this was a credential of great honor. (laughs) 
It was something to be trumpeted. He had chosen to yield himself. He was yielded to the Lord in this way. In that day, now think of it, in that day to glory in being a servant or a slave seemed ludicrous. And Brother Mark alluded to in our praise time. Can I tell you, in the day that you and I live today, you uh, more so with every day and year that passes, you start proclaiming that you're a Christian, it's going to be deemed ludicrous. You believe in a God you cannot see? You, you believe in a creator that all this was created? Hey, the world is going to look at you and I and say, why would you boast of being a Christian? Why would you boast of believing the Bible? You think that's true? It's not just a bunch of stories and fairy tales and you don't believe that it was just written by man and you don't believe that? Come on. Hey, in that day that Paul would boast of being a servant of Jesus Christ, why would he do that? That's ludicrous. Well, my friend, you and I, the days and years to come, To be labeled as a Christian, to be labeled as a fanatic for Jesus Christ, as a follower of the Savior, will be viewed by the world with every passing day to be crazier and crazier. More ludicrous. More out there. So could I ask you this evening, to be a Christian is to be a proud servant or slave of Jesus Christ. Are you proud of that today? Tonight? Would you gladly, if you were writing a letter to someone and you signed your name at the bottom, would you say, hey, gladly a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? Gladly serving Him day in and day out. Not just a church, not just teaching a Sunday school class, not just in the nursery, just not, no, no, no. My whole life, I'm serving Him. That, that's what describes me. That's who I am. Can you say that? And would you proudly declare that? Hey, let's just cut to the, the quick of it. Are there people at work who don't even know you're a Christian? Are there family members that have never heard from you that, listen, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, man. I read my Bible every day. I go to church, and guess what? I enjoy going to church. I like being there. I get to hear about my Savior. I get to worship Him. Do we declare that? Do we spread it? I'm challenged by how bold Paul is in even writing this letter. Oh, but the credentials don't stop there. Notice it. He says this, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Literally, what's his statement here? He's saying this. Not only am I a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I am one sent, sent by Jesus Christ. He proudly identifies himself as what? An apostle. What's the definition of apostle? It's one who is sent with orders. It is one who is sent on a a task. Literally, he's an ambassador. He remembered fondly, no doubt, as he wrote this. "I, I am an apostle. It was on that road to Damascus that... That Jesus Christ called me. He'd been commissioned, not like any other, or unlike, excuse me, like every other believer. He's been commissioned like you and I are too. Paul's about to describe how that the Christian life starts with salvation. It continues in sanctification, and then it calls for action, which is service for the Lord. And so Paul understood that. He explains it in this book, in this letter. Paul identifies and acknowledges that he was saved for a purpose, a specific reason. He was given a task to accomplish. Hey, I've been sent. There's reason and motive for my life. There's a purpose behind it. He's got a focus for the rest of his life. Paul captures that aspect of the Christian life that is God's responsibility. Don't miss it. 
See, what Paul says is, he says, I'm a servant, and he is willingly chosen to do that. Then he says this, I, I am an apostle. Now, that's God's part. That's God's doing. He's called Paul. He said, listen, I've called you, Paul, the road to Damascus. I've got great plans for you. Aren't you thankful tonight that God has said the same thing to each one of you? I've got plans for you. There's things I want to do through your life and where you live and the people who you're going to affect. I've got plans for you. And so this part of it lies at God's feet. It's not your responsibility to call yourself. We used to joke in Bible college and everything else that God doesn't want mama called pastors. (laughs) He wants to call them. (laughs) Listen, God calls everyone to what you do as a Christian. You have a calling on your life. You've been commissioned. That is God's part. He calls people. He sends us. He calls us to be His ambassadors in many ways, in many realms. And so it was for Paul. And so there's your word. He was yielded and God called him. He he was called. But before you can answer a call, you've got to acknowledge it, that God has put it on your life. Maybe so few Christians, or maybe there are some Christians who don't serve God daily because they have not acknowledged the call upon their life. And God has put a calling there, a challenge to them. So Paul expounds now upon the other side of that coin. See, that was God's part. He, he does the calling, but Paul now quickly in the same verse moves on to this next credential and that other side of the coin, which is our responsibility. In response to the call, notice it if you will. He said this, Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. You can guess that he said, I am a servant. He said, I am one sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. And now I am one separated, separated unto the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is his personal answer to the call placed upon his life. Now, this is interesting. We would say that he was dedicated. Dedicated. He was dedicated to the cause. This is what he said the rest of my life is going to be spent doing. There's nothing else more important. There's nothing else that that ought to eclipse this. This is the call of my life. It came from God, my Creator. It came from my Savior who died upon the cross of Calvary for me. And so now I'm going to answer the call with dedicated living. Separated living. Unto him. I like the statement. In this listing of this credential, there was no turning back. It was a declaration. In fact, we could say it this way, and we see it from the life of Paul. You know what Paul did? He burned all the bridges behind him. Crossing the Rubicon, if you know historically. There's also another truth that kind of bears this out. It's interesting. The conquistadors, the adventurers, the explorers, many of them, like the ones who were under the leadership of Cortez, a Spanish explorer. Cortez led his men there, and they, they, they sailed across the ocean, and they landed on Mexico. And when they landed on Mexico, as they got on shore there, the very first order, the very first command that was given was to turn around and burn the very boats that brought them across the ocean. Why? Were they cold? Probably not in Mexico. Why did they do that? Simple statement. No turning back. There's no going back. Hey, we came here for a purpose. And listen, we are dedicated to what we're here to do. For them, searching gold, laying claim to new lands from the motherland of Spain. But they were dedicated to it. We might put it this way. They were saying we are dedicated to one cause. And we are only going forward. For that cause. My friend, it is no less of a 
No less of a declaration from Paul in this very first verse. He makes it clear that I'm separated to the gospel. Things have changed. My life's different now. I'm going to answer the call. And what's interesting, that word there, aphorizo in the Greek. Now, this is interesting. uh, As we think about it, it has a secondary thought of horizon. The Greek word does. In fact, look at the word, the transliteration of the word. You can see it. It kind of looks at the end of the transliteration, horizon, okay, if you know how to spell horizon, okay? And so it's there. It's, it's, it's this thought of horizon. What's the significance of that? Well, notice what Paul's saying. Paul's saying this. Actually, let's back up a second. Have you ever been up early enough, and some of you are certainly driving to work, you see it, or, or maybe late at night, well, not too late now in the wintertime, but you ever see when the sun's going coming up or sun's going down and how it reaches that point where the sunlight just covers everything? And just, boy, it's just, especially, uh, we, we were coming to church, I think, think about three or four weeks ago on a Sunday night, and, and boy, the sun was going down, and the whole sky and the, the western sky was just a gorgeous red. It filled the horizon. Do you realize what Paul's saying? Paul's looking ahead in his future. And you know what fills the horizon? Serving his God. He's been separated into a purpose. My friend, I don't know how long you have to live. I don't know how many years you have left here on earth. But I do know this. Every year you're left here on earth as a Christian is a year you've been called to do something for Jesus Christ is a year that you are separated unto the gospel of God, just like Paul. Paul's declaration is truly challenging and encouraging all at the same time. You see, Jesus Christ and the mission of the gospel took up that whole horizon in Paul's future. But for you and I, we live in a world where so many vacillate, so many are not committed, the lack of commitment. We spoke of it often. There seems to be such a great lack of commitment. People flounder so much. Are you a devotee that God wants you to be? Are you devoted? Are you dedicated? Are you devoted to the cause of Christ? You see, a true Christian, now don't listen to the, the liberal theology. Don't, don't listen to, to those who would mix the true gospel with a prosperity gospel, would mix the, the gospel of Jesus Christ with a, a gentle or easier gospel. My friend, true Christianity is a sold out, dedicated type of life. That's what Paul says of them, Romans. There's no halfway to it, as as Francis Ridley Havergal wrote. There's no middle of the road. In our common terminology, we might say it's all or nothing. God wants your all. Here's Paul, and boy, he is describing such. Can I tell you, when you and I read a book like the book of Romans, it has a way, it has a, a means of challenging us to go deeper, challenging us to be stronger spiritually, to be more devoted to the faith, which literally means more devoted to our captain and commander, Jesus Christ. And so is the case here with Paul. He, he goes on to describe this one to whom he is dedicated. In fact, we call it that very same thing. Uh, we saw the credentials of Paul, and now we see the commander of Paul. As he embarks to describe his Lord and Savior, the one to whom he is a servant. He wants to share about him. As, as a true servant, his desire is to honor and exalt his Lord. 
And as he does, he begins to do something that he does for the rest of the book of Romans. He ties together the Old Testament and all of its history and the New Testament. Both of these, these testaments, he himself intertwines them here in the book of Romans. And he shows that their focal point, the thing that they all point to is the gospel and Jesus Christ, the good news of him. Notice it. Look at verse 2. We, we read it, but let's refresh our memory. He said this uh, in parentheses. So he's describing the gospel of God. He says, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now that's quite the statement. Uh, you see here we would, uh, it's an established truth. It's an important establishment by Paul. He's not presenting a new concept is what he's saying. This is not new teaching. This is not new doctrine. This is a continuation. Yea, better put, it's a fulfillment of what God had already said through the prophets of old. In 1 Peter, we are told that God spoke to the prophets of old. He he gave them what to say and those who wrote, he, he gave them what to write. Much of the Old Testament from the beginnings of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, from then on it all points to the revelation of the Savior, the Son of God in flesh. We just celebrated Christmas. His name is Emmanuel, which is being interpreted, God with us. Everything points to it. And Paul's saying, listen, hey, this gospel I speak of is what the prophets wrote about. It's not something new. It's not just New Testament. It is the entire Bible because it's the heart of God. Paul points to it and specifically points out the entirety of Scriptures. We'll see it through the entire book of Romans, through the types and even the specific references. It points to Christ. He was a fulfillment of every one of God's promises from that verse in Genesis 3 to every part of Isaiah 53 in our prayer bulletin. We have a letter from uh, the Sasanskis. And as you know, they're out there trying to reach the Jews and the Israelites. And every single one of their letters, there's a, there's a little story about him holding out or handing out uh, a, a track or something else and talking with someone, uh, the Jews who reject Jesus Christ. And one of the tracks that he hands out is about Isaiah 53, I believe it is. And, and boy, he likes to hand that out. If you read in the letter, they think this is interesting. I think it certainly applies here. In the letter, he talks about how he was reading through the paper and he came across an announcement in the paper, Toronto or wherever he is. He came across an announcement. You know what it was? A rabbi was having a service or a time to get together to refute Isaiah 53 because of the very tracts that Brother Szanski was handing out. You know why? Because they know Isaiah 53 points to Jesus Christ. So they're going to try every which way. As we studied Isaiah, they'll try to explain it away. And they know there's a lot to answer there because it's hard to see. It doesn't point to him. But my friend, aren't you thankful that all the Bible points to Jesus Christ? That's what Paul's saying. Paul's establishing a simple truth with some great statements. And if you're a Christian, if you like studying the Bible, my friend, this is a great book. This is a great chapter. Such truth, such doctrine that Paul just brings together and and repeats often, yes, but man, it's so wonderful. You know, it is the presentation that he is the promised one, and so there's your title. He is it was a promised gospel because the gospel is Jesus Christ, and he was the promised Messiah. 
The gospel's not relegated. It's not confined just to the New Testament. No, it is the message of the entire Bible. And unfortunately, time is gone. We're going to do this a little different, so I apologize ahead of time. If you don't like it, you have to bear with it for 16 chapters. What we're going to do is I'm just going to stop when it's time. I, I promised you a long time ago, several weeks ago, we're going to, I'm going to make sure we have plenty of time to pray because I want us to be a praying church, and I want us to bear one another's burdens. And so I'm going to stop wherever the clock says, okay? So typically I would try to finish the, the message and everything. We're just going to keep it an ongoing outline, okay? We might have 1,348 points, but it's going to be an ongoing outline, okay? We're going to get through the book of Romans. It was one letter, so why not? Amen? And so we'll do it. So I'm excited about it. I hope that kind of whets your appetite. We'll get into the next few points next week. Brother Cliff, you'll bring those prayer requests. Do pray for Brother Rick Loga, his family, and the passing of his mom. Pray for Brother Marshall, Otis Marshall, the passing of his mom. Pray for uh, Brother Judah and the healing from his surgery. Continue to pray for Donna 